This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Ultraviolet, U.S. pilot. They look human, but they're not. They don't show up on videotape or in mirrors. They're extremely sensitive to sunlight, ultraviolet. The so-called man in the car who caught on fire. You know what we're dealing with. I know what you think you're dealing with. They got to Brian Logs in his hospital bed. Who's they? The leeches. And they've gotten to Vigo, too. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast getting remade with professional catalog models as hosts. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? My, uh, <laughs> my professional catalog mo- model would be six feet tall. At least six feet tall. How tall are you, Jordan? Oh, I'm only like... I, I say I'm 5'8". I think I'm 5'7". I don't know why that extra inch matters, but <laughs> I think I'm about 5'7 or so. You're taller in my heart. How tall are you? You're pretty tall. I'm like 6'1", six 6'2". Six I always fantasize about that because you know what the big benefit you have in life is getting things off the top shelves. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, I've always had to reach... Uh, I can overreach. Yeah, you're just like, oh, I'll get those bowls for you. I'm always like, is there a stool? Anybody got a stool? It's the worst. Someone let me get on your shoulders. <laughs> Hold on, let me get on your shoulders and get a trench coat. And we'll go to an R-rated movie. <laughs> well, Jordan, before we get started, we got a little email. So uh, do we need something for this? Uh, we're getting an incoming communication. Is there like a, boop, boop, a bleep blop you can put in? <laughs> there we incoming go. Incoming communication. <laughs> The guy actually recommended Ultraviolet for us. He actually sent a little email in to provide some content. Or content? No. Context. context. We're using it as content. He gave it as context. <laughs> but Because I guess we'd been talking a bit about like the tone of the show, obviously, and like how whether it was kind of like British style, whether, you know, how much of this was about British television and stuff. And he kind of wrote in with a little bit of background as far as like Ultraviolet and where it kind of falls into the like history of British uh, science fiction. Mm-hmm. For the late 90s, it was surprised uh, to most UK genre fare, um, and he doubted many people watched at the time, but it's because UK TV in the late 90s didn't do a lot of sci-fi for adults. Um, it actually usually fell into sort of low-budget, tongue-in-cheek Doctor Who stuff because the BBC considered it as part of their kids' TV budget. Hmm. So that's kind of where sci-fi fell, and Ultraviolet itself was actually part of Channel 4, which was, as he puts it, uh, a lot more edgy and adult-oriented. Um, so I guess they're they're Fox of the time. It is interesting if this wasn't indicative of similar things on TV or similar tones on TV. It really is the strength of the show, or at least one of its strengths. I think both of us felt that right off the bat that the show knew what it was, and for you know for better or worse, and it was a very consistent throughout. So you'd assume that there was uh, similar things on TV, but at least according to uh, his email, and I'm assuming he's the authority. I mean, he's our authority now. That's true. Here's a line he's wrote that I, I maybe you can explain it to me. I didn't. This is maybe a, a UKism that I don't I don't quite know. But he he compared ultraviolet as, as a sort of a blade crossed with a UK police procedural, and he says it avoided getting too po faced. Oh, I I don't know what that means either. Too po faced. I assume that is something like too like um, self serious maybe. 
Mm. You don't think it's an Edgar Allan Poe reference? To to Edgar Allan Poe fest. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to have someone who uh, who is from the island over there to explain it to us. Uh, and now Tru is going to want to write back in, but we'll have moved on past Ultraviolet. So I've really I've really uh, let him down. But uh... we'll have moved past Ultraviolet and moved past him. <laughs> we'll never move past Drew. <laughs> Getting back to uh, Edgar Allan Poe face, though, what do you think that is? Like you could just get too drunk and marry your cousin? Ooh, what a deep cut from Luke. I think it's just uh, wacky mustaches. The last thing I wanted to mention from his email for context-wise, I thought this was interesting, um, and I might have to look into it a little bit, but he said the like modern British spiritual successor to Ultraviolet was uh, Humans from 2015 to 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he felt like the world building was very much in that similar vein, so uh, maybe something to look out for in the future for us. Yeah, maybe. But now that we're getting into it, this is our final episode on Ultraviolet, and we're going to be watching the U.S. pilot that was made in 2000, never aired. What did you say you wanted it to be called, Ultraviolet, back in the USA? What did you want to call it? Back in the USA? I don't remember now. Was there? Did I have a great a witty slogan for it? I doubt it. This time it's American. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Ultraviolet, America style? Yeah, something like that. What was that show? American style? What was that show? Love American style? I don't know. That seems like it's uh, from your era of... Uh, My era. We're the same age. Brady Bunch and uh, <laughs> the Fonz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my era, the, the 1970s. Um, it was kind of interesting. I was looking at sort of the end of the UK show and how this sort of US pilot sort of came around. And the creator of the UK show actually never intended to originally write and direct all the episodes, I guess. I guess he thought he would get it going and sort of set up maybe future seasons of it. But because he put so much time and effort into making the entire six episode arc, he kind of just like let it go after that. He just didn't have the energy to continue it going. It obviously didn't have a huge following in the U.S., but some U.S. producers had seen it, thought it was interesting and decided to try to bring it bring it over to their shores. I don't know if you saw this, but there's a quote from one of the producers, uh, Howard Gordon, about about making the U.S. pilot. And when he said, quote, we screwed it up and it just didn't come out that well. I did see that. And I mean, obviously, they're being a little bit uh, self-effacing, but um, well, we'll talk about it. It's an interesting, interesting take on the on very similar material. Since they remade it, Jordan, why don't we attempt to remake it first before we get into the pilot? I'd love to. Do you want to do a quick recasting? <laughs> Let's remake this for a new generation. You're ultraviolet, the next generation. The next generation, yeah. <laughs> Guitars squealing, you know. That's what everyone loves right now. It's like EDM music, right? It's just like uh, big, big foghorn. That's it. That's all the kids like. Jordan, you love the kids. You know what they're up to. I know what the kids are up to. I've got my finger on the pulse of today's youth. I've always said that. <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's start recasting this. Uh, and let's begin, of course, with Detective Sergeant Michael Colefield, the uh, star and hero of this. I've got two choices. How many choices did you come up with? I do have two people. Initially, when I started this, I thought I'm only going to do an all British cast as an ode to the original series. But then that, you'll see that, that by like the third character, I've, I've lost that. But I do have two people in this both from the uk well you did better than me I, I did not stay true to the uk spirit of that at all let's do it who's your first pick for uh michael i went with adam scott adam scott interesting i'll tell you about adam scott he's got a real punchable face i felt like him or paul rudd was a choice we just used paul rudd and i see them as very equivalent and i thought a comedian or a lighter comic actor in this role would would uh maybe I could see him him mugging it up a little bit. He wouldn't be as as uh, affronted by vampires. He'd be more like, "Whoa, vampires!" 
I think I went with a slightly different tone. My first pick, and I realize it's not really UK, it's Ireland, but Domhnall Gleeson. Oh, yeah. People love him. He's hot. It's 2020. He's hot. That's no question. Yeah. I maybe have something in between those here, still with the kind of that uh, Adam Scott potential, but maybe a little more Mm -hmm. of a dramatic actor. I went with Mark Ruffalo. Oh, Mark Ruffalo. A little bit of an older choice. I like Mark Ruffalo, though. He's a good actor. And he, he wouldn't be so serious. I'm trying to picture him in the role. I don't want him to be a tough-as-nails detective. I want him to be, like, right. a little more likable. Let me go with my second pick here, and that's uh, new Elton John himself, Taron Egerton. Okay. I don't hate that, actually. I'm just going for, you know, again, what the kid's like. These are young actors. They're hot actors. People, people are like, hey, I'd like to see that person. Kids love Dominic Gleeson. Oh, yeah, the kids love him. The kids love him. They've got his poster on their wall. Well, we both went, uh, I mean, I don't think, I think we went a little bit different directions. I'm, I'm hedging my bets here because I actually think your second pick might be the perfect combination of these two choices. Okay, so we'll go with Taron. He's going to finish 2020 with another big hit, this time Ultraviolet. I think he can be very tongue-in-cheek, which is why I like him, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm down for that. Do you want to go to Angela March next? Sure, we can do Angela March next. Dr. Angela March. Dr. Angela March, excuse me. She did go get her PhD. I shouldn't take that from her. All right. I've got two choices again. I'll lay both mine out and then why don't you do yours? Okay. I went with Claire Danes or Anna Paquin. You know what's funny? I had Anna Paquin on my list too and then deleted her and she's not on my list, but I had originally put her as well. So that's a pretty good, uh, you and I are simpatico on that. We we had our heads in the same similar place. (laughs) Well, let me give you my two because now again, she's not on my list. Michelle Dockery. Who's that? She's from uh, 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 Downton Abbey, I think is probably the most famous thing. Oh, is she the oldest sister? Yeah, the oldest sister. Okay. Very serious. She seems to be popping up in a lot of movies. Yeah, she's very serious. That's what I was going for. People were like, ooh, blood. Uh, And then another person who uh, seems to be great at playing the number two or three movies, Rebecca Ferguson. Oh, yeah. I mean... Should we just go with Anna Paquin? We could. I don't mind that. Let's do it. I was going for like someone in a cable cable drama. <laughs> sure, let's do it. She's an Academy Award winner. And it'll tie it back to True Blood, just like the original series. Mmm, that's what we're always hoping. Now the important thing, Vaughn Rice. Let me just say, I have one person, because I only think only one person can do this role justice. You and I are in agreement then. On the count of three. One, two, three. Idris, Idris Elba. Elba. That's it. Is it Idris or Idris? I don't know. But why replace perfection? Exactly. Let's have him do it for a third time. No one knows the character like he does, inside and out. Sometimes he has a mustache. Sometimes he has a goatee. Maybe he'd have a full beard in the movie. Ooh, I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> All right. This is already shaping up to be a blockbuster, let me tell you. Now, I here's where things are going to get nebulous, I think. is I have cast uh, Father Pierce J. Harmon, but I have completely abandoned Christy and Francis. And I don't know if you have or not. No, I've, I've cast them. So we'll just throw someone in based on my picks. Well, let's go with Father Pierce J. Harmon then. What a name. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a very specific set of requirements when I chose to cast him. So these may really throw us for a loop. Okay. So I don't know if you want to go first, maybe. Okay. Well, why don't I give you my first pick, which I think is a little bit of a left field. But I think once you hear it, you'll go, yeah, you got the stuff. Brian Cranston. Okay. I don't hate it. Give me your other one, too, because I'm going to have to give an exposition for my picks. My second pick is, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name because I'm terrible at names that aren't John or Joe. Maharshala Ali. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
if there was ever a role that he'd get slotted into, like like the C-cast list of this would be him. He's going to be able to bring something to a role that probably, when you break it down, is maybe in the movie for 15 minutes, right? A man whose whole career seems to be, here's a tiny role that you're too good for, but you're going to elevate beyond its de- what it deserves. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. So now let me hear your odd pick of uh, Steve Buscemi, whoever you chose. For whatever reason, as I was writing this down, it was just like, Father Harmon should be incredibly elderly. Really? I don't know why. But for whatever reason, I just was just like, he should just be like so old. Just like so, 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 so old. So when you're watching the show, you're going, God, this character, I wish he just was 20, 30 years older. I could really relate to him then. I just want him to have been doing this. He's been doing this for like 70 years. This has been his whole Mm. job, just fighting vampires. You like him frail and and close to death. So I've got two choices. Sidney Poitier, 93 (laughs) years old. Okay, I don't think he's acting anymore, but okay. Oh, he's acting. For this, 100%. Yeah, he's coming out of retirement for it. And Ed Asner, 90 years old. <laughs> okay, it's n- I love Ed Asner. He's not going to be in the role. It's not going to be Ed Asner. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> it's just, it's too weird. I think the audience will be distracted. He'll just be in the, like, the little priest collar. It'll be great. <laughs> He'll have to be opening it the whole time. He'll be like, ugh, I can't even breathe. That's my Ed Asner. It'll be like in uh, the Watchmen, the new Watchmen series. Oh, and what's his face was in it? Exactly. Why well, can't I remember his name right now? Lou Gossett Jr. Lou Gossett Jr. Thank you. I was getting him confused in my head with Lou Diamond Phillips, but it was Lou Gossett Jr. So our picks again are: it's either Brian Cranston, Maharshala Ali. Uh, sorry about the pronunciation. And then you picked who was it? Dick Van Dyke. Who did you pick? Ed Asner or a Sidney Poitier. Right. Okay. Well, you know what? You really went on a limb on this, so I'm gonna let you pick what you think. Uh, you think's gonna round out this cast? If you want him to be 90 years old, I'll go with it. I'm really leaning that way. So why don't you pick the which of the 90 year olds you like more? Well, it's got to be Sidney Poitier then. Great, because I agree. <laughs> I didn't see it that way, but I'm sure once he steps on set and puts on that collar, we'll be believers. He doesn't need to do a lot. He just needs to be in like an interrogation room, sitting down, and just like yelling at a person. Right. Right. <laughs> Okay, so then we have two new roles that only I apparently have cast, so we'll do them real quick. Sure, I would have written those two characters out, but we'll go for it. <laughs> Both of these are really thankless roles. So I was trying to think of someone similar to Father Pierce, someone who could do a lot with very little, especially these two roles, because they're pretty bad in both shows. So Kirsty, I have either Alicia Vikander or Tessa Thompson. Okay. And then for Francis... I don't know what I was doing here. These these two people couldn't have been more different, but Zoe Kravitz or Brie Larson. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. I was just like, sure, why not? I would never do that to Tessa Thompson. So uh, Alicia Vikander gets it. She's in for Kirstie. And then um, I think it's going to be, so I assume that's for Francis, the second, the second. Yeah. Give me the names one more time. Zoe Kravitz or Brie Larson? <laughs> I think it's Zoe Kravitz. We never get Brie Larson. <laughs> All we need to do to finish this movie, and then we'll we'll do a roundup of who we've cast, is who is this directed by? And I have two interesting picks. I don't know if you've uh, picked a couple directors as well. I only have one because after I thought about it, I'm like, I thought about him. I'm like, yeah, no, it's him. Well, what, I'll give you my first one then, and then you give me yours, and then I'll give you my last one, which is my dark horse pick. Okay. So my first one is Ryan Johnson. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It makes it controversial. People aren't going to know what to think. I mean, I like him. I, just, I mean, I don't know what he do with the material. It's a good question. Counter me. What do you think? Who do you got? I went with someone I think, well, is not as perhaps auteur-esque as that. Mm-hmm. I do think 
maybe falls in that same sort of indie breed of director. Before you say it, Tony Scott's dead. No, it's not Tony Scott. <laughs> We're not digging up his corpse. Uh, Barely make a difference. But I do think he's the kind of guy we've seen him do some great work with adaptations, particularly of a genre sort of uh, world, is I went with Mike Flanagan, director of Dr. Sleep. Uh, he did The Haunting on of Hill House on Netflix. Mm. He did Oculus was his first movie, quite good as well. I think he, he's very good at taking an okay idea and elevating it quite a bit. Do you think Dr. Sleep was elevated? Did you not like Dr. Sleep? No, I didn't like Dr. Sleep. I thought it was a fun, fun time. Did you really? I wish there was more uh, nonsense scenes with hats. Uh, anyways, that's a, diff- that's a different uh, different show. Rebecca Ferguson was in it, though. I think that movie was considerably more fun than it had any right to be. <laughs> Perhaps. I think maybe the problem was the actual source material. But again, it's a longer conversation. Did you see uh, House on Hot Still? I did like that, though. I think I think he's very good at taking a piece of genre, even if it's maybe not like as strong as it could be, and like giving it a fla- a visual flair and like a sense of fun. Well, talk about sense of fun and a visual flair. Are you ready? Go for it. Get on the edge of your seat, Luke, because you're going to need to. My pick for the movie, M. Night Shyamalan. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know what's going to happen. He's back. His comeback's complete. He's doing ultraviolet. If he hadn't just done glass and blew the good work he did with the last one, whatever it was called, I would be considering it. Yeah, that was bad. I agree with you. I'm all for uh, uh, J. Jonah Jameson. Who did you pick? What was his name? Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's do that. There's a brief moment where I was just like, okay, uh, M. Night Shyamalan. But I'm like, oh, that glass. He really ruined it for himself. So let's do a rundown. Playing Detective Sergeant Michael. What's Michael's last name? Colefield. Colefield is Taron Egerton. Yes. Dr. Angela March is Anna Paquin, correct? You got it. Vaughn Rice will be played once again for the third time. Idris Alba. Of course. Father Pierce J. Harmon will be played in a wheelchair by Sidney Poitier. I'm telling you, you won't regret it. <laughs> oh, I would never regret it. I, uh, he's a great actor. I just, he's old. Kirsty will be Alicia Vikander. Perfect. And rounding out the cast is Francis, played by Zoe Kravitz. And this is going to be directed by... Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan. I mean, take my money now, am I right? <laughs> I think you sound skeptical. Well, I'm skeptical they would ever make Ultraviolet to a movie, but if they're going to, this is the one. <laughs> All right. Good recast, Jordan. Should we should we just do it then? Should we finally dive into this US remake? Hold on. Let me just put on Smooth by Santana as we start. It's the perfect way to start any American television <laughs> show. That's how you know it's an American remake. Uh, I know. Here is the IMDb summary for the Ultraviolet US pilot. Unavailable. There is no summary for this anywhere. Oh, I'll tell you what the summary is. It's a couple episodes of the British one jammed together. You really spoiled it for everyone, didn't you? No, it's not spoiling anything. <laughs> well, I li- I did like that it does start off very much like the beginning of the British pilot where it's uh, it's a bachelor party. We're meeting our lead character. His name is uh, Lieutenant John Cahill this time. I'm sure it has to do with clearances and there's someone's name in the other country, but it always seems odd to change something as innocuous as someone's name like how is john cahill any better or worse than michael uh what was it again michael cofield cofield i don't know why i can't remember his name but it's just like okay sure it's john cahill but again as i mentioned the most important thing is at this bachelor party santana's smooth is playing which could not be more of a timestamp of when this show was shot <laughs> i mean i think you still could uh put that in any time it's timeless <laughs> 
Do you think so? You think that song's timeless? I don't think it is. <laughs> it's gonna be at your bachelor party, right? Well, it's on the mix, anyways. It's it may not be the first song, but it's on it's on the list. So this bachelor party, one thing that's different is I think we actually see a little bit more of this bachelor party than we did in the British version because we have a character who I think it's an unnamed character who is he's filming stuff. Yeah, I've got a guy walking around with a video camera, kind of taping the whole things, and and John Cahill, like the previous one, is a cop, but his job is a little more filled out this time he he seems to manage undercover agents in the field Mm -hmm. he's at the bachelor party for one of his undercover agents who's quite good friends with who's left the undercover game um replacing john from the uk version uh vigo is our is our new fiance wasn't that an odd name choice when you think vigo what do you think because i think only think of one thing i want to know if it's the same thing what do you think when you hear vigo uh either the actor or the ghostbusters villain yeah ghostbusters villain that's what i thought ghostbusters 2 vigo which, by the way, what a different movie that would have been. <laughs> if this guy was Vigo? Yeah, if this guy was Vigo. And it's somehow the same universe. <laughs> and now he's a cop on the New York streets. <laughs> I'm like, well, it wouldn't be worse than Ghostbusters 2. But anyway. <laughs> oh, also, real quick, we learned the fiance's name is Neely, too, in this scene. It's all everybody's everybody's renamed. Yes, this. Uh, so we're seeing a bit of this. Uh, I guess it's taking place at a bar with go-go dancers who maybe are strippers and it's really strange because the man with the video camera who's kind of introducing us to because we're seeing everything through his lens for the first little bit he's walking around he's shooting ladies butts they're gyrating for him mm-hmm. and then he's stopping detective uh, john cahill and he's being like hey john i'm shooting a tape here do you have any advice for the bride and i'm just like is the bride getting this strip club tape i thought the same thing because i was like who is this tape for is the tape was it so he could the guy getting married Vigo, uh, not the Ghostbusters Vigo, so he can look back and just reminisce about that time of debauchery the night before his wedding. Which again, by the way, this also, as silly as it was in the British one, is also the night before the wedding. Yeah, I, I know. Did you catch what John Cahill's advice to the bride is? No, what, what did he say? He was like, like, run away or something? What did he say? His advice, he turns to the camera and says, spare the rod, spoil the child. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was weird. And I, uh, well, what was that? What is that supposed to mean for her? I don't, I don't know. I, but you know, given the present moment of time we're living in, and I'm just like watching a show about a cop. I'm just like, oh, all cops are bastards, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, too, too political. It's very political. But I mean, it was just like <laughs> such an aggressive statement for the for your lead character to make. It's just like you should just hit people. I'm like, what? <laughs> Unrelated to that, what do you think about the recasting of the character? I will say this about both him and Vigo. It is like what they saw in the British show is they were like, oh, we really liked how the fiance had that long, greasy hair in the UK version. What if both our lead characters were like very model-esque with like long flowing locks? I won't feel this consistently, but almost all the people they've cast, I don't like as much as the British version. Now, I'm, that's not saying anything else about the, the finished product, but for the most part, I'm like, oh, guys, uh, I don't know if this is a better choice. Certainly these two lead men, uh, no offense to them personally. I think I'm sure they're very nice. They were just so pretty. Like they really went out of their way. To, like it felt like watching models. Well, they come across as bland is, is the unfortunate uh, outcome from their casting. That's true. At any rate, as this sort of night's wrapping up, John wants to get uh, old Vigo home so he can get some sleep before the wedding. And he finds him being videotaped while making out with two strange women in the corner of his bachelor party. And he like breaks it up. He's like, hey, you're getting married tomorrow. And I'm just like, these people are bad people. 
but he does convince him to leave the party, but he can't convince him to take a ride home, even though he's promised uh, Neely, the fiance, that he will be taking him home. I guess they've sort of implied that if he didn't physically take him home, this guy is such a wild and crazy animal. He might, you, who knows what he would get up to, but they basically have a, a very light argument. Um, v goes, I'm going to walk home. I'm going to do it myself. And then uh, John goes, all right, I tried. And of course, then Vigo uh, proceeds to get into a classic tinted black vampire car. It happens right away, too. It's like, I guess the implication was they were waiting, but it's like, he's like, I'll just walk home. Lights go on, gets in the car. You're like, no, okay. Something sketchy here. And then we proceed to scene two the next morning, which is much like scene one of this show, which was scene one of the British version. Scene two of this US version is the first scene of the second episode. (laughs) And this is something uh, we'll talk about in a moment, but they take an aspect of the plot of the second episode and they use it in the f- in this episode. I actually don't think it's a bad choice. It's um, Vigo is in the car with someone who's clearly a vampire. Why they're still driving around from the previous night, I'm not sure. This guy seems to be taking Vigo to his wedding. Like he's just like driving him to the wedding. Is that what you think that was happening? Have they been in the car all night? Well, that's, but that's what he says. Like the vampire is just like, are you excited? He's just like, about getting married, I am. He's like, not about getting married. Like, he's clearly taking him to this wedding to get married. It's not nefarious at all. It's just weird. He's just like getting a ride to the wedding. But the whole point of the scene is, if you listen to one of our previous podcasts on episode two, they're in traffic. They get into a, a, an altercation with a guy on a motorbike. The guy gets angry and breaks the window, breaks the tinted window. So light comes in and burns the vampire guy. So he drives off. Obviously, that was a plot for the second episode in the British version. I did kind of like the idea, though, that it was the inciting action as the reason why Vigo doesn't go to his wedding, because this specific thing happened in the morning, as opposed to a just vague idea in the British thing. And that's something I actually did think worked well. I think in theory, putting these two plots together actually could have worked, and it doesn't do too badly actually off the top. They switch it up a little, like they still hit a guy in a motorcycle, but to, to keep it fresh, now when the vampire burns, he grabs the arm of the biker, so the biker now has the burns on his arm of a, a handprint, unlike in the previous one, it was the, mm-hmm. the, the banker. And then they still do make sure, as the car drives off in a fury, they run down that biker, so he's also paralyzed. Yeah, they're like, there's one thing we're not losing, guys. It's the paralysis. Although I did like, did you notice the difference between a, a US biker and a UK biker? I did notice this this guy was much more intimidating. He didn't have a little mustache. He wasn't he wasn't quite the uh, cute chubby guy. Uh, he was much more of a classic skinhead biker. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Anyways, they drive off. The guy's burned. And then we get to go to the wedding. Same thing we saw in the other other version of the show. And uh, we meet fake Kirsty slash Neely. And she's not happy because clearly Vigo's has not shown up and is not going to show up. Did you recognize the actress playing Neely? No, who was that? I looked her up afterward and I was just like blown away because I didn't recognize her at all. But uh, she's from Twin Peaks. She's in the new Riverdale show. She plays Betty's mom. She's like hmm. been acting in like really high end stuff for quite some time. She's even in the new version. Like she's in the third season that they just did of Twin Peaks. So she's like a major character. But it was just very funny because I'm just like, oof, this was a real hit swing and a miss for everyone involved, I guess. Also, probably something she's very glad did not get picked up. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure her career did much better as a result. Um, but yeah, same thing. Basically, they're trying to figure out what happened to Vigo. Why he didn't show up the wedding? This time they've discovered that that night, I guess while, he, while Vigo was out with that vampire, 
the evidence locker the police station was broken into and all the evidence in the Garcucho money laundering case has gone missing and it's all pointing back to old Vigo. And they say Gargucha so many times in this and it made me laugh every time. I don't know why. It just seems like such a silly, stupid name to put in a show. And they just, they lean into it hard. It's like, oh, it's the Gargucha case. Hey, there's Gargucha over there. Anyways, it made me laugh every time. It's still stupid. It's very, it's very silly. And it is because it just sounds like a made up word. Yeah. But of course, because this is a case that John was working, or, or John and Vigo were working on as undercover agents, they're not allowed to look into it. And I knew a new sort of investigator shows up to figure out where Vigo is. And that, of course, is Idris Elba, previously playing Von Rice, but now playing Von Shepard. Yeah. And the only real difference in him is he had a mustache in the original show. And this show, he has a goatee. Um, so that basically takes John theoretically off the case. But of course, because he's our hero, and I guess because cops follow no laws... Uh, another police officer intervenes and says, hey, before that man takes the case away from us, here's this secret file about a car accident I came across that you should look into and run a side case that you that is like clearly too close to you while this is going on. But he essentially gets word that there was a car accident with a car that burst into flames around the same time as the wedding and that a biker has ended up paralyzed in the hospital as a result. And they believe it may be related to Vigo. And what I like is um, the way they did this scene. He gets the file and stuff, and he's like, motorbike accident downtown. St. Michael's, the hospital's uptown. That doesn't make any sense at all. I was like, ooh, I'm excited for this plot twist. Well, I think they're trying. They're just trying to imply that he, because he, he went to St. Michael's, a, a Catholic hospital. It's like, what I does that it. mean? Yeah, it just was like, all right. I, yeah, very clever. Anyways, so he's running his own investigation. And, and I think we really quickly, we do get to see... Um, he does go to the hospital in St. Michael's and he does see the guy who's um, who's been paralyzed, the motorbike guy. And there's a doctor there who, you know, she's doing something interesting. And I, I don't know if you understand why she's running an ultraviolet light over him. Now, we know as viewers that it's because it's a thing of a vampire. But in their world, what is she looking for? She knows he's not being bit by a vampire, so it's not going to show the vampire bite. So what is she looking for? I think she's looking for some indication because she does end up putting it on that hand burn that the biker got and seeing that the hand burn lights up, meaning vampire contact. Well, that's what I didn't understand. I'm like, is that what happens if you've touched a vampire? You get marks of like, I was like, I just don't know what she was looking for. I mean, that's that's all I can offer you is that appears to be what she was trying to determine. (laughs) So anyways, we meet her. She's our new version of uh, Angela March, and it's Dr. Lise Matthews. Not Lisa, Lise. Was it Lise? I thought it was Reese. No, it's Lise. L-I-S-E. Ah, I looked it up. Interesting. Yes, Dr. Lise Matthews. And Deirdre, you say she's our stand-in for Dr. Angela March. I would also say she's our stand-in for Father Pierce Harmon as well. It's a good argument because, spoiler, he will not be in this. And I think they've just blended the two characters together. But you're right. Uh, I think it could go either way. And with this actress as well, I think once I looked up this actress as well, I decided to forgive all the actors involved in this project for how not good it was and blame it solely on the writing and directing of it. Because this woman also has like a storied career as a character actress. So she's she's in House of Cards, the Netflix series. Like clearly she's uh, has done much better work. So I really am putting all blame on this show onto uh, the writing and directing of it. We had just talked at the beginning of this podcast about the tone of the original show and how it seemed to really work and be unique. This is desperate to find a tone and it never really lands. Not that they're they're trying wildly different things. It's not like it's pie in the face one minute and then cancer in the next minute. But it's uh, 
it feels like it doesn't know what it is and it sort of flails for the whole time i just found it to be overly broody like i felt like whenever they needed a moment they would just push it on one of the characters face and let their like the hair hang over their eyes and for them just to brood about some piece of information but did you feel like that landed at all no but i felt like that was just the only tone they were going for is just like hmm. oh what a what a broody gothic show we're making but one that just wasn't ever landing um it just didn't work hmm. for me anyway but i should say at this scene what's his face cahill talks to matthew she doesn't really give him a lot of information but he does see that she starts talking to vaughn outside the room and he sees that they go into what i think is a secret elevator or it's an elevator he can't access yeah it's got a passcode on it so he he now sees that for some reason this doctor and this inspector that he's just met both seem to know each other and have access to a secret part of the hospital and he's very suspicious plus this hospital is way uptown and the accident happened downtown so it's all adding up also while he's doing that uh that paralyzed biker in that uh, huge contraption he's getting a little visit from somebody who may or may not be a vampire, but says they can really help him out if he needs it. Yeah, it's a vampire. <laughs> all the vampires look very vampire-ish, right? They're all very pale with like ready lips. Yeah, they're certainly, I think, done up a little more in the tradition of a vampire. So she's a vampire, you know right away. And they also don't call them Code Fives in this show. They, the closest we get is they call them leeches. That's the only like that's right term we get used. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, John then from the hospital heads over to the impound lot to check out the burnt car to see if he can find any information about what happened there. But uh, waiting in the impound lot to talk to him in broad daylight is Vigo. So he's not a vampire. Yeah, Vigo's there just chilling because that's the best place to be. I guess he knows John will go. Yeah, he knows he's going to show up somehow. And we get a very similar scene as we saw in the British show. As soon as they start talking, Cahill punches Vigo in the face. <laughs> right in the face. Right in the, right in the kisser. Right in the kisser. And then we fade to black. Yeah, they faded back. They come back from commercial, and essentially the scene is just there. He's just like, hey, I did steal the evidence. That is true, but it's much bigger than you know what's going on, and I just need you to keep my fiance Neely safe. That's what I need from you. Is this where we get to go to uh, finally meet Garcucci, and it's a, a Canadian celeb? Is it? I didn't notice. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's not a Canadian celeb. It's Carla Rhoda, uh, most famous probably for uh, the Canadian uh, show Little Mosque on the Prairie doing i don't know what accent he's doing it might be middle eastern it might be eastern european it might be uh, north african i don't know what it is but anyways he's doing a he's doing he's really going for whatever accent he's garcucci's supposed to have you assume he'd it'd be italian but that's not what he's doing <laughs> I, I honestly i just assumed it was italian and blocked out because that scene was so meaningless <laughs> Well, he gets a couple scenes, and, and he's not good in any of them. <laughs> well, I think may, I, I think that just goes to my point. I I don't blame the actors. I think there's something else at play here, because the actors have gone on to much better careers. Yeah, it's, it's probably the director sucks. or That's right, I said it. Just the writing, I don't know. Who knows who's to blame? Yeah. But we'll pass judgment, that's for sure. We go to a scene, I think, at the police department, where Cahill is given um, info from someone who looks like it works with him i thought at first it was supposed to be like a new version of francis which i think it sort of is but they've re redone it as not someone who works for mi5 or the equivalent like cia or fbi but i think she's supposed to be a police officer right yeah she's the same one who gave him the file about the burnt out car she just seems to be there to provide him information since he's not at the precinct mm-hmm. 
he basically asked her to look into March and Vaughn and we basically get the same information we kind of knew before is like he's former uh, army just like the UK version and she's a blood scientist and the only real difference here is we discover who she works for and at first I thought this was a cover but it turns out that the they're not working for the Catholic Church in the show they're working for the CDC yeah Center for Disease Control I've never seen a show where the CDC was presented as a shadowy conspiracy organization before. Uh, I'm into it. I just wish it was executed better. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but she also happens to mention while he's there that that biker who was paralyzed just checked himself out of the hospital. And uh, of course, Cahill's just like, well, that sounds suspicious. Yeah, it does sound suspicious. But essentially, yeah, what we have here is John goes to track down this miraculously healed biker. And we kind of end up in a very similar chase sequence from the British pilot where they end up in a subway. Mm -hmm. They kind of pull the same gags from the British one. Like he'll hide behind a corner and use a mirror, his non-reflection in a mirror to get away from Cahill. Cahill will look over video feeds and not be able to find him because he doesn't have a ref- he doesn't have a video presence. And But things take a bit of a turn from the British show here when he does spot on the video cameras uh, Vaughn stalking through the subway pulling out a submachine gun and so he tries to run down to the subway uh he's in the what have you got like security room at this point he runs down to the subway it's actually a pretty well composited shot where it's he's standing on one platform vaughn's on the other platform vaughn has the gun on the guy and the train is running in between them and he's trying to like get him to stop and put down his gun but as the train goes by he pulls the gun up shoots the vampire and the vampire blows up but not quite to the same extent that the british vampires blow up the american ones for some reason are a little more subtle they're less explosive they're less explosive yeah they, they're not holding their emotions in as much as the english oh too too close to home is that too close i don't think it is i don't think it's anything controversial no no <laughs> the english the english are known for being very expressive with their emotions <laughs> but yeah that sort of uh scene plays out and now basically john has seen though obscured vaughn kill a vampire or something that exploded anyway and you know it's rocking his world basically he's like me you vampire when what so john heads back to that hospital to figure out what's going on he kind of just hangs out casually next to that elevator he couldn't get into before because he didn't have a security card and i like as a uh i think it's a doctor just swipes in he just sort of uh, gets in behind her he's you know sneaks in after she gets into the elevator and her reaction to him is as if his face is melting she's so horrified and freaked out i guess the, the what they're implying is that he might be a vampire but i'm like why would a vampire try to break in there there's like the lights everywhere well i i didn't mind that actually because she doesn't have a line she is just like really freaked out and to be fair a man has forced his way onto an elevator behind you a secured elevator there are many reasons to be worried about him fair enough but as soon as the door opens and she goes out and sees that the ultraviolet lights have no effect on him and don't show anything, she's like, ah, he's all right. He's just a weirdo. Well, I did like, actually, because as the doors open in the elevator, you see her, like, turn her back and cringe away waiting for him to explode. And then he doesn't. She's like, okie dokie. And she just runs out of the elevator. Yeah. She just goes back to work. She's like, oh, back to it. But he's grabbed by security. And, of course, uh, he very quickly is approached by uh, Marchin Vaughn, who... Who's he's been caught in their new ultraviolet underground lab, which is never fully explored or really shown off, which you'd think in the pilot you'd want to show kind of what the secret underground lab looked like, but we don't really get a sense of it. Um, but essentially, they kind of fill him in on the idea that like vampires exist 
the CDC is here battling them and that vampires started becoming more organized since the AIDS epidemic in an attempt to like save the blood supply potentially. Yeah, yeah, they say since AIDS, they've been panicky about their food supply. And I, for something was a little bit tone deaf on that, uh, but whatever. I mean, not the greatest, not the greatest uh, <laughs> choice, but uh, I mean, the UK one uh, missed the mark on tone a couple times too, so. That is true. Um, but essentially, they let John leave, I guess, to let him discover the truth about Van. Like, he's not sold. So they're like, all right, well, you can go out there and do your investigation and uh, we'll check back in with you later. Yeah, well, they, and they also imply um, she seems to be implying that he might be someone they want to recruit. She seems to try to be convincing him and, and wanting him to be part of the team and more as the show goes on. She's very militant too, like against vampires and against that sort of world. She's really filling that role in these scenes of the priest father Pierce from the previous mm-hmm. show where he's just like very, uh, a very a zealot about the um, about the whole organization. Mm hmm. John ends up leaving, going back to the precinct. We'll get a scene. We get a few of these scenes, but I'm not going to talk about them really. But Neely, the fiance, will drop by and badger him about where's my, where's John or where's Vigo, sorry, and what happened to him and why are people saying he did bad things. This leads John to pull out that tape from the bachelor party and sort of watch it for clues, I guess. But what he notices as he's watching it is that scene at the end where he pulls those women that Vigo is making out with away from him on the tape is just some really bad mime acting where he's prote- like where he's not, there's nobody there. He's like ushering two non-existent people away in a, a very poorly acted mime sequence. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, this moment, basically the same thing. We, we got the same idea though, is he sees a vampire was in that bar. So he heads back to that bar where they had the bachelor party and starts like, kind of roughing up the club owner being like hey what happened to my buddy vigo you know more than you're saying and he sort of grabs him and starts pushing him toward the door like i'm gonna push you into the sunlight we'll see how you like that you vampire scum and the club owner's feigning as we come to find out he's like oh no don't push me into the sun that's terrible and is that gargucho again yeah it's gargucci i like that scene because gargucci's really like playing up like don't push me into the sun that's terrible and then when he gets pushed in the sun, he just starts laughing like, yeah, oh, you idiot, I'm not a vampire. Is this where they find out that Garcucci has been working with the vampires to steal bioweapons? Or he, they find that out very shortly anyway. No, uh, kind of what happens here is he, when he pushes him outside, he's like, oh, I'm, you're not a vampire, so I can't threaten you with sunlight. So Cahill like pulls out his gun and just looks like, I'm going to execute you in broad daylight on the street. Right. Uh, which was... Very bad scene for many reasons, but it was just like crazy. But he doesn't. He does. Well, it's true. He doesn't. And what we do see is that like the CDC pals are kind of watching from a car being like, well, he's really blowing a cover here, isn't he? But I like, though, that Matthews, they're all just like, let's just go with it. Let's just go with it. He's he's going he's gonna to figure it out. It, we could just tell him, but let's just let him figure it out himself. Because he doesn't get any information out of Garcucci. He kind of ends up wandering away and we cut back to the police station. And once again, Neely showing up at his office being like, why are they releasing these lies about my fiance? And as she busts into his office, he's sitting there talking to Matthews. And Matthews is like, all right, we'll come clean with you about what's going on. And you're right. What they do, what they do say here is that Vigo uncovered stuff with Garcucci and that they stole bioweapons. And I think they say anthrax and smallpox from the old Soviet Union for sale in New York. To terrorists. To terrorists. Correct. But that is a lie. That is not true. That hasn't happened. No, 
That's what she came up with on top of her head. The CDC is just lying to cover up the fact that vampires exist. That's a pretty good lie, though. But what we don't seem to see happen here is because when we go from that scene where she's Matthews is telling the fiance Neely that her husband's a terrorist now. And then Cahill just shows up at the vampire's apartment where Vigo has been hanging out this whole time. I think the implication is that Garcucci gave him the, the address, but we never saw that. I thought it was that Matthews knew all along and that fi- she finally told him. It's one of those things where there's a scene missing, really, because it's just like, why is he there? Because we both noticed it, right? So, but I mean, it, it could be either one because it wasn't on camera. Fair enough. What I, what we haven't talked about, and they cut back to Vigo a few times throughout the episode, but they're all pretty minor. Like we kind of see him hanging out at this vampire apartment. We come to learn he's been basically feeding the vampire who had half his face burnt off to help keep him alive. So he's been kind of uh, being a human feed bag. And there was a small montage midway through the episode. I don't know if you remember this, Jordan. But it's a scene where the actor playing Vigo, the poor man, I do know what you're going to say, is watching the sun rise and set, and he's like has to press his body up against the window as if he's sensually absorbing the sweet sun's energy, and it just like looks like it's out of like some sort of really bad romance, where you're just like, oh my love. It looks like an early '90s erotic thriller, and they do a few of these transitions, but yeah, it's just. I, I noticed it too. I've already pulled it for uh, Instagram. It's it's so cheesy. I can just see them directing the poor actor being like, no, you're like, you're really, you're really into the sun. Like you can feel its rays through the window. Press your body against the window. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's just so bad. And I think you're right though. It's just, there's something happened here and, and you feel bad for the actors because they just, I think everyone's game and it's just not working. At any rate, Cahill finally catches up with Vigo. He busts into this apartment with his gun drawn. And the other vampires there all kind of excuse themselves from the scene. And there's a, there's a kind of that classic scene where they argue about, are the vampires good? Are the vampires bad? Mm-hmm. Is the CDC lying and spreading propaganda? Do the vampires just want to kind of live their own lives and like not be doing this? Like they talk about part of the reason Garcucci was laundering money is because the CDC is always closing down vampire bank accounts. So it's impossible for them to like stay alive like they're constantly losing their assets Mm -hmm. but john is not really sold he's still pretty upset about vigo ditching the wedding so they get in a bit of a tussle john gets thrown into a table full of glasses and like shatters a mirror and cuts himself and when he looks back at old vigo vigo looks awfully hungry seeing the sight of blood yeah he's he's a vampire well he picks up that uh just like that one episode where the mirror shard he uses the mirror shard to see if he's a vampire Mm -hmm. or not it did seem like the people making this there was a bunch of scenes they really liked and they're like, well, we'll just put them on the pilot. I'm like, you're wasting them. They could be used later. <laughs> save them up. Save save them for the show that's never going to happen. <laughs> but essentially now we know Vigo has turned into a vampire. He joins the burnt vampire and they're sort of, they have like a whole cabal of vampires. There's like two other women with them. They seem to have like a whole entourage of vampires with them. And they're, they're trying to make an escape via vampire ambulance that's waiting outside. Fortunately for them, Vaughn and his special forces have them cut off from their escape. And we kind of get this little scene where this whole entourage of vampires hasn't really had any moments. But there's this one moment right here where the burnt vampire and one of the women kind of revealed they've been their lovers. They've been together for centuries. And seeing as the burnt vampire appears to be about to die, like they're they're having this kind of touching sequence. Be more touching if we got to know these characters, but just this idea of their their centuries old love coming to an end and that... Vigo could have this with Neely 
if he wants to bring her over to their side. Like he could he could rekindle his love, which I thought was interesting because in the British version, John walks away from Kirsty pretty quickly off the top. There seems to be no it is really more about a potential romance between Christy and Mike Colefield in that show. Where there is the idea of a love triangle still in this episode, but in this series, but Vigo definitely seems to still really want Neely to come with him, which I thought was nice, but not fully developed. You're right. It, what would have worked more is if we had had a little bit more time with these characters, because old Burnt Face, and we, sh- we should say, by the way, at this point, he only has half face because the, the sunlight burned him, so he's missing half his face. And he only really has a couple scenes where he's laying on a couch. You don't really get any sort of interpersonal connection between these two, but it's a pilot. At any rate, Vaughn's team manages to kill the burnt vampire in a wheelchair, which seems like low-hanging fruit for them. But the other vampires... (laughs) That's funny. The other vampires, including Vigo, manage to sort of sneak away. Cahill stops them and, like, pulls a gun, but ultimately he, like, still feels a friendship toward Vigo, so he sort of lets them escape. And he just says, just stay away from Neely and I'll let you out of here. Mm -hmm. And, of course... As soon as he lets them go, Vaughn walks in and is just like, did you just let all those vampires go? And he's like, yes. And he, Vaughn punches him in the face. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just getting punched in the face. But then we get to a weird scene where Michael goes into the street and he just kind of like, he just kind of looks at people. Any one of them could be a vampire. I guess that's the point. He's just like, oh, look at that. And then we get the old real quick thing. Matthew shows up and she's like, you can't let people know they're vampires because, you know. Yeah, you want a job with the CDC? Yeah, and he's like, maybe. And then, but then we get... What is perhaps the greatest scene in TV history is we go to Neely and she's uh, she's in her apartment and uh, she's cradling her wedding dress. Yeah, she's reminiscing of what could have been. Cahill goes up to the window, looks, and he's just like, oh, look at that. And then he leaves. He's a real peeping Tom. Yeah, he's a peeping Tom. Then she turns around and she sees Vigo is there. And what happens is... She's very happy to see him. They start embracing and they're like, oh, whatever, we love each other. And they're hugging. And then it cuts to a reflection. And again, similar to earlier in the episode, it's some of the worst miming I've ever seen. And it's her dancing, like uh, her hugging nobody because he's a vampire. And I laughed and laughed and laughed because it was so funny. That mime hug was very funny. All the all the times they had to interact with a character who wasn't there. It was quite clear they didn't spend enough time blocking or thinking about how they were going to shoot those scenes. Yeah, no one said, what is the size of a human being if you were hugging them? Because what it looks like is she's hugging a beach ball. And that's where it ends. She's hugging the air. And oh, I should say, and the song at the end is Beth Orton's devil song. Uh, that's what we uh, we go out to. It was funny. You can tell that this was an uh, unfinished pilot or like a semi-finished pilot because all the music cues in this are music cues that I, I was like i recognize them all and i realized they're all from another failed pilot um that i've uh heat vision and jack a ben stiller comedy we've talked mm. about briefly on here it's the exact same like music cues it's a kind of like just like a dramatic sting that comes in at the beginning of every scene i'm just like why do i know this song so well i'm like oh right it's from that other thing i've seen a million times right they just like have a stock of things they can use it was all just temp music and let me tell you very effective in this show <laughs> But yeah, that that wraps up the U.S. pilot. I mean, pretty easy to see why it didn't get picked up. It just, yeah, it, mm-hmm. it just never works. The actors are left to flounder, I think, for the most part. I, I, I'm willing to forgive them all. It, I think they were just 
left to left to swing in the wind. I was talking to Laura about this earlier, and uh, I mentioned the acting. This reminded me a lot of um, the Star Wars prequels, where you have some very talented cast members look like they're struggling to get through scenes because they don't know what they're doing and what they're supposed to be saying. That's what it felt like. Everyone felt a little bewildered. Well, and maybe that's it too. Like, it's just like they did one or two takes. No one gave them any like notes of whether they're doing a good job or not. And so they're like, I don't feel like I'm doing a good job, but no one's saying anything. I think there was a note though. I think director just kept saying, more brooding, more brooding. Brood, brood. (laughs) So overall... This was, in a lot of ways, similar to the other show, but uh, how do you feel about this as a comparison? It's very funny. I I enjoyed watching it, especially since they took so many beats from the first two episodes. So it was an apples-to-apples comparison in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where they start falling off because like there's good ideas there's places that it could and should work it just never does it just never does yeah so it's kind of fun watching an adaptation take all the same things and then just like somehow not be able to execute with them i feel the same way it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is it's the same plot it's the same basic tone it's you know, it's not like there's some wild different experimentation they did with stuff, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't land in the same way. And it just is sort of a, it's almost like a stereotype of an American version of a British show. And it's like 10 minutes shorter than an episode of the other show and feels longer. It, yeah, I'd agree with you on that. So I think it's like 42 minutes and the other shows ran 51. And I'm just like, why is this so long? This felt like a feature length movie. It felt like it was an hour and a half oh well i mean i'm glad we watched it it was super fun after having watched the show to just watch mm-hmm. an adaptation so quickly afterward but i don't think anyone need bother themselves uh, i'll get right into the rating i'm 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 gonna give it a two uh, i enjoyed some of the mime acting and i thought it was fun seeing those first two scenes lifted directly out of the other show but after that it just sort of like really burnt itself out pretty quickly I agree with you. It's not good. I didn't like it, and I don't think anyone needs to watch it. Like, the original Ultraviolet, go for it. Watch the show. I think you'll enjoy it. I'm not going to go quite as harsh. I'm going to give this a 4 to 10. I think there's a lot of elements that could have worked. It's just maybe in someone else's hand. I just think this particular team didn't do it. Yeah, get Mike Flanagan on the phone already. When this movie gets made, everyone will be changing their tune. They'll be like, UK, get out of here. The Br- the American one's the one to watch. <laughs> That's not a great average, though. What is that? That's like a 3. Yeah, that's a three. That that would give it an average of three. So no, I, no we're not we're not putting that high on the uh, old uh, no. wall of fame. No. But that wraps it up for the pilot, U.S. pilot of this. It wraps it up for all of Ultraviolet. We're we're mm-hmm. we're through we're through Ultraviolet. So we're going to be moving on TV movie next week. Get on to a new series after that. We're we're in the full swing of this third year now, Jordan. Off to a good start, I think. Ultraviolet was a nice one to start with. It's true. Very, very high point in... Uh, it's all downhill from here, isn't it, Jordan? Now that I'm talking about it. <laughs> it, might, it might be. It might be. Because we we don't usually get more than one one good show a season. Oh, we got we to gotta do better, Jordan. We got to do better. I think so, too. At any rate, uh, we'll have some uh, clips so you can see what this American version looked like on... you uh, Not on YouTube. What am I talking about? It is on YouTube if you want to watch it, though. Our clips will be on Instagram and Twitter. At Continuum Drag is the handle there. It gets to lots of miming, and uh, I guarantee that transition scene is going to be in that where he makes love to the camera. And you can, of course, email us at uh, Continuum Drag. At- ContinueDrag at gmail.com. There we go. That's that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the email address. But uh, that wraps it up for Vampires for us for the time being. So, listener, thank you for joining us. And, Jordan, I'll see you next week. See you then. 
Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.